0: Good to see you here today. Uh, If you've got a Bible, turn with me to Daniel chapter 3, and as you turn there, uh, if you're online with us or if you're in person, there should be a card that you can access if there are things we can pray with you or for you about, or if you'd like to leave us some information about yourself so we can send you some information about us, there's a card on the seats here in the worship center, but there's also on the homepage of our website, and so you can access that card in either of those locations. And it be our joy to pray with you and for you. We do want to pray for John. also continue to pray for Keith West and Latitude GLC. They had their annual uh, event on Friday evening. And after a couple of technical hiccups, it went off phenomenally. Uh, the, 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 the excitement around what God is doing through Latitude was evident in the lives of the new partnerships that are coming on. I would encourage you, go to their website, take a look at what's going on there. Uh, is the video posted there for folks who would like to come and look at it potentially afterwards? It will be soon, Keith says. And so, if you'd like to go see what God's doing there through that ministry, I would encourage you to do so. Um, this morning, we are here to celebrate five years of gospel ministry in the community of faith. And so, I'm excited. Yeah. I'm excited to be here this morning. I hope you are as well. And over these last five years, as uh, Becca did some decorations for us, printed some banners and some balloons. Everything feels more like a celebration with balloons, doesn't it? And so uh, we, got, we got some decorations this morning. Uh, they'll be here again tonight whenever we share in the dinner together this evening. But these last five years have been testimony, a testimony, one trailing, running testimony of God's faithfulness to us. And I'm going to share more about that as we get on into the message this morning. But um, there are so many stories of God's faithfulness recorded for us on the pages of the Bible. We could go into a lot of places, but perhaps none more fitting this morning for us than the story of three young Hebrew men, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, or they became known by their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the book of Daniel in chapter 3. So I'm going to read for us in Daniel chapter 3. And we are going to pick up in verse 8 and read down through the end of the chapter together. If you don't have it in front of you, it should be on the screen behind me if you want to follow along there. Daniel chapter 3, beginning in verse 8. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. nor do they serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then King Nebuchadnezzar, in a furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made well and good but if you do not worship you shall immediately be cast into a burning fiery furnace and who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands Shadrach Meshach and Abednego answered and said to the king "O Nebuchadnezzar we have no need to answer you in this matter If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and He will deliver us out of your hand, O King. But if not, be it known to you, O King, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell into, bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to him, oh, True, O king. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire, and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not any power over the bodies of those men. The hair on their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed. No smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. God's Word. Listen, church, throughout history, God's people have lived in exile. From the time of Genesis chapter 3, humanity has been exiled from Eden, cast out of the paradise, able to walk and talk and see face to face. With God In the Old Testament, the people of Israel on several occasions were exiled from the land of promise and they were taken captive by foreign nations who led them back to their own homelands. In the New Testament, we're told that the church in this age is an exilic community of faith. So, we're in 1 Peter, we're told that we are strangers or sojourners and exiles, that every church in every age, in every generation, in every location lives as an exile. So, this is not our homeland. America is not the land of promise, that we await a country that's to be revealed to us, a land that is coming from God Himself. But one thing is true about exiles in every era. Exiles, no matter where they find themselves, they always face pressure to conform to the norms and values of the prevailing culture in which they find themselves. And the same is true for these three young men. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the the land of Babylon. They face the pressure to conform to the prevailing winds of the culture around them. And so what I want us to see this morning, and listen, we could apply this text. There's so much more here than what I can say today. All right, And we could apply this text in all kinds of individual ways. But what I want us to do this morning is see how this what unfolds in the pages of Daniel 3 is unfolded in the life of our church as an exilic community of faith, as a strangers and sojourners, exiles in this land that we find ourselves here in the heart of Rockwall County. And how it's unfolded for us over these last three years. And what lessons we learn from this text this morning. So I'm not going to be pressing on a whole lot of individual stuff. But I want us to see corporately what God has done and how this applies to us. So to see the pressure they faced. How they responded. What it's able to produce. And who was present with them. So first and foremost, the pressure they faced. These men faced the pressure of pluralism and pragmatism. Okay? In the book of Daniel, the people of Israel find themselves in exile in Babylon. So in the 6th century B.C., God raises up the nation of Babylon, the empire of Babylon, the preeminent power in the world at that time. All right? You didn't mess with the Babylonians. And God raises them up to discipline His people because of their idolatry and because of their rebellion. And so when Babylon came in, they came in several times, but perhaps the most definitive time was in 587 B.C. And in fact, archaeologists tell us that whenever they excavate the layers of history in Jerusalem, that in that time period, there is evidence of the city of Jerusalem, its walls being crushed and its inhabitants being killed and the dwellings being burned to the ground. The entire city was razed. It was brought to the ground with fire. And so Babylonians, what they did whenever they went in to conquer a land is they exiled... The influencers, the noble class, the professional classes, the artisans, the scholars, the governing officials, the military officers, they led them away into exile. And this was their strategy, subjugation of those peoples through assimilation to their culture, because if they could influence the influencers of the culture, then they could influence the culture at large. So they brought away all the influencers into Babylon, took them away from their homes, immersed them in the culture of Babylon, at times gave them positions in the kingdom of Babylon, in the empire, to oversee certain things. And within a generation or two, they were pretty certain they could stamp out the culture of the exiles and replace it with Babylonian culture. And therefore, those conquered peoples would stop resisting the claims of the empire. That was their strategy over and over and over again as they conquered lands and peoples. And Babylon, listen, it was a religiously pluralistic culture, not all that different from our own these days. And what religious pluralism is, listen, let me, let me just define it for you. Religious pluralism is the concept that two or more religions with, equally, with, with mutually exclusive truth claims are equally valid. In other words, you can believe this about, you can have this worldview and this set of beliefs, which seem on the surface to conflict with this worldview and this set of beliefs, but religious pluralism would say both of those have equal validity, both of those are equally true. That's what pluralism says. And the way pluralism works oftentimes, and even within our own culture, is to say you're able to worship any God you like in private. In the confines of your own churches, in the confines of your own homes, you're able to worship any God you like. So long as you do not worship your God as the only God in public. Any God you like in private, but you must bend the knee to the image in public. See, the king has built a large statue of himself. And where He has built it is telling. He's built it, many commentators believe, geographically in a very similar location to where the Tower of Babel was once located. Now if you remember back in Genesis, the Tower of Babel was that place where humanity sought to exalt itself and climb into the heavens and make a name for themselves. And God comes down and He puts a stop to that work by confusing their languages and scattering them to the ends of the earth. And so what Nebuchadnezzar is trying to do is he conquers these lands and brings all these people together. He's trying to unify them and bring them back into one people. He's trying to overthrow what God had done. And so he builds this large statue, either representing himself or the gods of Babylon. And then when the band begins to play, he demands that people of every nation, of every tribe and language, right, all these peoples they've constituted, conquered, all these peoples are trying to subjugate, that they must bow down in worship of this image. He's aiming to unify his kingdom around these public values, the worship of the Babylonian gods. But what the king is not saying, he's not saying that you must worship the gods of Babylon alone, but you must worship the gods of Babylon also. Right? So you can do whatever you like in public, in your synagogues or in your churches or in your homes. But in the public arena, you must add our gods to your gods. So in private, you can worship whoever or whatever you like, but in public, you must bow down to the image. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the text are under pressure not to stop worshiping Yahweh in their private spheres, but in the public arena to bow down to the idols of Babylon. See, pluralism doesn't restrict the worship of any god so long as you don't worship it as your only god. As your only god. And listen, there is pressure in our day and age to do the same. See, there's people will say it's okay for you to worship and believe whatever you would like in private, but do not bring that into the public spheres of your life. In our culture it's acceptable to believe anything you want, but there's pressure to tone down the message of the Bible, of the exclusivity of the one true God, Yahweh, and His Son Jesus Christ, and the Power of the Holy Spirit, this one God, right, in three persons, there's pressure to tone that down in the public spheres of our lives because pluralism will always, every day, deny the exclusivity of the God of the Bible and want to elevate other gods beside Him or even above Him. And what that leads to, listen, church, if those who adopt that kind of mentality, what that leads to is a sort of spiritual schizophrenia where you act and think and and believe one way in private, but then you act and think and believe another way in public. And that may look all kinds of ways individually, but let me tell you one way it looks corporately. One way it looks corporately for churches, see, one of the cultural idols in contemporary American culture is the idol of pragmatism, is the idol of pragmatism. And in church planting or church revitalization, there's massive pressure to bow the knee to that idol in public, no matter what you believe in private. And let me tell you what this means. Pragmatism essentially is the philosophical tradition that measures words, thoughts actions behaviors and beliefs in terms of their practical use and success in other words the question of pragmatism is not is this right but does this work okay not is it right is it true is it appropriate but does it work So, for instance, even in this text, the most pragmatic thing the men could have done, right, is to adopt that pluralistic worldview and said, I'm going to continue to worship Yahweh in private, but in in public. Listen, does it really matter what I do with my knee? Does it really matter if I bow before that image? That would be the most pragmatic thing they could do. And while pluralism denies the exclusivity of the God of the Bible, pragmatism denies the authority of the God of the Bible. In other words, when you embrace pragmatism, the highest authority in your life is, does this work? It ceases to be God. And the influence of pragmatism on our churches and our culture is undeniable. And listen, five years ago, whenever we moved from Sabine Creek Ranch into Highview Learning Center, right, that, it'll be five years actually next month. The first Sunday of December in 2015 is when we gathered in this room for the first time to worship Jesus and so the first Sunday of 2015 of 2020 I'm sorry first Sunday of December 2020 that'll be five years we've been here but Redeemer was born about six months prior to that on the property of a retreat center south of Royce City when we moved here when we moved here I don't know if you felt it but I felt a significant pressure to just be pragmatic in everything that we did and one of the results of that pressure of pragmatism upon church is the refusal to handle the hard truths of the Scriptures in God-honoring, Christ-exalting, and winsome ways. Because it doesn't work to grow a church whenever you talk about same-sex marriage. It doesn't work to grow a church whenever you address things that in some way, shape, or form somebody out there might construe in some manner as being Political. Okay? It doesn't work to talk about the hard teachings of the Scriptures. It doesn't work, so stop doing that. It also affects us whenever we see a church that has a particular doctrinal statement, but in their practice, they do something very, very different than what they say they believe. right? Because in private, they would give lip service to these particular doctrines and beliefs, but then in public, they exercise themselves. They practice things in ways that are very inconsistent with what they say they profess. This is why you see sermons oftentimes like titles with like four keys to self-aware and well-adjusted parenting, right? Or, or three steps to a healthy marriage or five principles for financial freedom, because so much of the pragmatic winds of our culture are driving what pastors preach about from the pulpit. This is also why in a commitment-phobic culture, churches have stopped calling people to commit themselves to one local body through membership. And so rather than entering into covenant relationship with a people, right? uh uh Folks want to just kind of use churches for the best things they have to offer here. And I'm going to go to this church for this. And I'm going to go to this church for this. I'm going to send my kids to this church for this. And I'm going to do this other church for this other thing. Right? And so we just kind of pick and choose from all these things in churches around us, but we never really commit to one local body. This is also why when people plant churches sometimes, they try to get the best band money can buy, the most entertaining preacher they can find, and the highest quality media production they can afford. Now listen, there is nothing wrong with excellence in what we do and pursuing excellence in what we do. I believe in that. Right? But just because it works doesn't mean it's right. And listen, it, that is a formula that has been shown to go take churches from a living room, right? To a school auditorium to a mega church campus in seven years. Right Get the best money you can get the, band, the best band money can buy, the most entertaining preacher you can find, and the highest quality media production you can afford and what that does is it grows churches by taking Christians who are a part of this other church, drawing them now into your production that you 're doing on Sunday morning without any real shepherding in the lives of those individuals oftentimes there 's gathering a crowd on Sunday mornings that would be to some degree, shape, or form, entertained rather than pastored. Listen, the pressure of pragmatism is real. And I can remember driving through Rockwall in December of 2015. I remember exactly where I was. Exactly where I was. I was sitting at the stoplight on the square at 205 and 66. I was sitting there, and there was another former member of our church who was in the car next to me. And so I'm looking away because I don't want them to see me, and I'm weeping because I felt the pressure of performing, of being the most entertaining pastor, of having the most, most successful kind of thriving ministry, and that if we moved from a rural context into a suburban context and we couldn't get traction here, we would die. And I remember believing that. The pressure is real, church. And I'm sure there were some of you who've been with us along the journey who felt the same pressure as I. Now, let me be clear there's nothing wrong with something working, okay? There's nothing wrong with that. The problem is when what works comes into conflict with what's right, which one wins? And we are all under the pressure because pragmatism is an idol of contemporary American culture that says, Believe what you like in private, but in public, bend the knee or you will die. You will die. This is the pressure they faced, but see how they responded. Listen, they responded with the perseverance of true faith. The Perseverance of true faith. When threatened with death by the king, they should, not, that, that, that should they not bend their knee to the image he'd established, these men make a profound statement in verses 17 and 18. Listen to what they say. We believe God is able and willing to rescue us, but if He chooses not to, King, we're still not going to bow down to your image. We're still not going to worship you. We're going to trust and worship God, the Lord alone. Because true faith, listen, church, true faith does not trust and worship God for what we can get from Him, but for who He is, for who He is in Himself. In other words, He's not our vendor, He's our treasure. He's not just useful to us, he's beautiful before our eyes. And there's a big difference between those two perspectives. Let me see if I can illustrate it to you this way. Amazon.com is incredibly useful, okay? It's incredibly useful. You can go on Amazon.com right now and you can find all kinds of stuff that will be at your doorstep two days from now if you're a Prime member. This is not a commercial for Amazon.com. But listen, you can go find all kinds of things, right? You can, order, you can order gun stocks and chicken stock, all right, off of Amazon. You can place orders for place settings or pillows. You can order kitchen knives and field knives, automotive parts and craft kits. You can find all kinds of stuff on Amazon.com, and it's incredibly useful. But the Amazon rainforest is incredibly beautiful. It's beautiful. One in ten known species in the world lives in the Amazon rainforest. This constitutes the largest collection of living plants and animal species in the world. The region is home to about 2.5 million insect species, tens of thousands of plants, some 2,000 birds and mammals. To date, at least 40,000 plant species, 2,200 fishes. It does my heart good to know that? 1,294 birds, 427 mammals, 428 amphibians, and 378 reptiles have been scientifically classified in the region. One in five of all bird species in the world are found in the Amazon rainforest, and one in five fish species live in the Amazonian rivers and streams. Listen, church, while sunglasses you can order off of Amazon are incredibly useful when the sun is bright and, and the glare is killer, but sun sets in the Amazon delta. Are magnificent. They capture your heart because they're beautiful. And there are many things that you and I might find useful, but there's a difference between something being useful and something being beautiful. And our problem as human beings, our basic problem is that we tend to come to God for His usefulness, not His beauty, not His majesty, not His glory. And listen, I want you to tell you something. That will not be enough to cause you to persevere in the face of a furnace. In Psalm 27, verse 4, listen to how the psalmist describes this. He says, One thing I have asked, one thing, one thing that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. He says, the one thing I want, God, out of everything else that I could have, is to see your beauty. And listen, usefulness, church, will never lead us to say, but if not. It will never, but beauty will. Beauty will. In his book, God Alive, Bishop G. Leonard notes, he says, it's not an exaggeration to say that the average Christian today sees religion primarily in terms of the help which God can give him or her in this world. With a vague expectation for the world to come rather than as an active, creative relationship with God, a relationship which has professional implications for this life, but which is fulfilled in eternity. To put it crudely, he says, it is an attitude which regards God in terms of His usefulness rather than as an object of adoration and love. Now, how do you know whether or not you have true faith or a faith that dissolves in the face of the furnace? See, when, when, let me give you several examples. First of all, whenever God's providence, and God's providence is this, I've used this illustration before, when you take a thread of God's sovereignty and the thread of God's goodness, and you bring them together and you tie them up into a knot, that knot is God's providence. That He controls all things and He's working all things for the good of His people. Okay, That's His providence. And God's providence, listen church, is evident both when the sun is shining and when the storms are raging. God's providence is real when there's not a cloud in the sky and it seems like the fog is never going to lift. His providence is real in the midst of both of those. And so when you find yourself, when we as a church find ourselves under the fog, do we look up and accuse God? Or do we continue to worship and trust Him? And when the sun comes out, do we forget God? Because He's given us everything that we need. So we don't need Him anymore. Do we forget Him when the sun is shining? Do we accuse Him when the storms are raging? It's one of the ways to know whether or not either we as individuals or we as a church body are using God or we're loving Him persevering in true faith, holding on to God for who He is, not what He can give us. See, true faith loves God for Himself, not for career advancement, not for children who turn out right, not for padded investment and retirement accounts, and not for thriving ministries, large churches, and the multiplication of a footprint in a community. We love God because of His worthiness, not His usefulness. The perseverance of true faith. And when these three young men say, but if not, because God was beautiful to them, not useful, notice what happens next. And I would call this the product of suffering. See, when these three men persevered in true faith, they brought upon themselves the wrath of the Babylonian king. He had the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual. The number seven in the Bible is the number of completion. So in other words, he heated the furnace as hot as it could get. And he had them thrown into the midst of the fire. In fact, the fire was so hot the text tells us it killed the mighty men, okay? Not the scrawny little soldiers over here, right? The little foot foot guys, but the mighty men in the king's army. It killed them, consumed them as they threw these three men into the fire. But notice this fire did not come. They didn't face the furnace because these men had been unfaithful, because they had turned away from God, but precisely because they had resisted the pluralistic worldview of the culture in which they lived and they refused in public to bend their knee but clung to god for who he was not just what he would give and so they faced the furnace and in the bible listen furnaces and fires are oftentimes metaphors for suffering for affliction for hardship and for distress and one thing two things we learn about fire in the bible first of all it's inevitable It's inevitable. In Job chapter 5, somebody who knew a little bit about suffering, all right? Job chapter 5, verses 6 and 7, he says, For affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble sprout up from the ground, but man is born to trouble as sparks fly upwards. When you got a fire going, what happens to the sparks? They shoot up above that fire, don't they? Shoot up and out from that fire. And he says, As sure as sparks shoot up and outward, so man is born to trouble, will experience affliction, will experience and encounter hardships. Peter says it this way in first Peter four. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Right? In other words, do not be shocked, because fire is inevitable. In particular, the kind of fire that Jesus would say would come whenever we are persecuted for righteousness' sake. In other words, when we cling to God for who He is, and we continue to put our feet on the path of following Him, remaining true to our convictions, there's going to be fire in your life. But I want you to know that fire is not purposed by God to destroy you, but to refine you. And to change you. 1 Peter, as well, in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter likens the fire that we encounter to the fire of a smelter who's taking precious metals, putting them in a pot, putting in the fire, and as it heats up and that metal begins to boil, it causes all the impurities, they call it dross, to rise to the top. And then the refiner comes and scrapes off the impurities so that he's able to see a truer reflection of his own face in the metal that's how he knows it's done is when that reflection is clear and that's exactly how the fire works in our lives and I want you to tell you something it refines us in at least four ways and I believe we as a church have experienced this kind of refining over these last five years it refines us first of all it refines our self-awareness it refines our self-awareness it shows us when, whenever you go through suffering, whenever you experience trial, whenever affliction is at your doorstep, it reveals to you more and more about who you are. a Self-awareness. And listen, I'll, just be, I'll be transparent with you this morning. These last five years, particularly a season of about two of those years, brought to the surface... All kinds of dross in my life. Like I realized, I realized how prideful I was. I realized how arrogant I was. I realized how much of my identity was wrapped up in my ministry and it's been successful. And God, all this while, as this church was put through the fire, He was refining me. And I trust He was refining you as well. I learned more about myself through that than I ever could have learned through some kind of personality profile. Okay? Fill in the the blank, Scan Tron. Click a link. Whatever it is. I learned more about myself by going through that fire than I ever would have through any book that I could read about self-awareness. Fire has a tendency to do that in your life. One of the other things real practically that it did for me was it helped me come to the recognition that a simple message on Sunday mornings isn't necessarily a shallow message on Sunday mornings. Listen, some of you have commented about the preaching and teaching, and while I'm very grateful for that, listen, please do not ever go back and listen to the first three years. Okay, I think we wiped those off of our podcasts all right listen there everything was always in my mind so complex but over these last several years i've worked hard because god's shown me that about my own leadership and teaching is that it needs that that shallow is not simple simple is not shallow but simple is understandable taking deep truths and making them understandable and so i've worked hard to do that but it raised that self-awareness in me Begin to pull things out of me thinking pridefully that if it wasn't the most complex thing I could possibly present on Sunday morning, I wasn't being faithful to God. Some of you are like, you're weird. I, I know I'm weird. Okay, I know that. Second, it cultivates compassion. There is no other way, church, that you and I will grow in our compassion for those who are suffering other than experiencing it ourselves. No other way. And listen, over these last five years, as we have lost friends, as we've lost family members, people whose lives, our lives, were intertwined with into the life of a church body, that is a painful experience. Some left well. Others did not leave well. Which is the norm in many churches. All right. There were multiple times where somebody just quit showing up and I would pick up the phone and call them like two months in and they would give this excuse and then that excuse and then that excuse and then finally it's like their conscience got to them eventually and they said, hey, we'll just be honest with you. We're going somewhere else now, right? And so that's, those are painful experiences when these are people that you've loved and you've invested time into and it's hard. Now listen, I do not want to, to minimize The suffering of the saints who are losing their lives for the sake of faithfulness to Christ in the parts of the world. They have a fuller degree of this experience, but it does not mean that we don't have a degree as well as we seek to be faithful and hold to our convictions and our values. But it cultivates compassion as you suffer now. I remember sitting down with some people um, who were new to our church and they had somebody who was in part of their life group who stepped out on them uh, and left, I mean, right after they had joined the church. It was like, boom, the, the ink wasn't even dry on the membership covenant. And they were like, hey, we think we're going to go somewhere else. And I remember sitting down with them and just saying to them, listen, man, you got shannoned. Okay, because among our elders, that became kind of a term for when people tell you one thing to your face and then they just kind of do something completely different. All right. Um, but it, it, it created compassion in me so that as that continued to happen at times in the life of our church, I wasn't angry necessarily at those people, but more hurt for them. Not by them, but for them. Because they trusted us enough to help shepherd them on the way in, but not trusting us enough to help them shepherd them on the way out. It, it brings compassion in our lives, refines us in that way. It also refines our trust our ability to trust God in really hard circumstances. And I want you to know something, church, is that we as a body, we owe a debt of gratitude, not to me, but we owe a debt of gratitude to God for a handful of faithful families. Jim mentioned it earlier here in his prayer. Who continued to trust God in the midst of hard times. Listen, there were months where we didn't know where we were going to get money to pay our staff. There were months where we didn't know where we were going to get money to pay our rent. There were months where we didn't know where we were going to get money to do ministry in the community. There were years where we budgeted uh, <laughs> very, very little. Because all we had was very, very little. Right? And that we went through those times together and those handful of families some of whom are here this morning and some of whom are not. I'm not going to call names because I don't think they want that notoriety or recognition. And if I did start doing that, I would eventually leave somebody out and they would be offended. So I'm not going to do that. But we owe a debt of gratitude to them because through that process, they learned to trust God for this church and how God was leading us and what God was doing in us. He was not only refining us individually, but he was refining us as a church body. As people who, who could not invest themselves for whatever reason in the values and vision of Redeemer moving forward, but they found another home where they could do that. But He was refining us, making us, preparing us for the place that we are today. But listen, finally, it also cultivates wisdom. It refines us in wisdom. Some things that I learned through that process Again, and, and it's it's it it's, it's helpful perspective. When I when I see people who are coming to the life of our church now and I see people who have left. Because some people, listen, are home buyers and some people are home builders. And what I mean by that is this: some people want to walk into a finished product, right, and just kind of plug in and be a part where all the rooms have already been. Been raised and the framing's already been done, the sheetrock's already up, the texture's already on the walls, right? And they can just move their furniture in and buy the home and live there. There are other people who are home builders, they're like architects, right? They envision things in the future, they're trades, they like to roll up their sleeves and get dirty in the realities of ministry, right? There may be the decorators who want to help put the finishing touches on things. There are some people who are home buyers and some people who are home builders. Listen, I want to say something that there is a sinful way in which people are home buyers, where they're just consuming from a church, but there's also a non sinful way in which people can be home buyers because they're just enjoying the ministry that was already built and they're plugging into it and continuing it as it moves forward. But there are some people who are just not cut out to build stuff, right? Some of you say, I'm one of those people, right? You don't want me working a saw. You don't want me with a drill or a nail gun, right? But in ministry, particularly in church plants or church revitalizations or young churches, new churches, right? You probably need some of both, but heavily leaning on the side of the people who want to see something built. They go, I'll raise that wall. I'll frame up that room, right? I'll move the appliances in and be a part of that. And that's freed me tremendously. And I hope it would free you as well. Not to look at people who have come and gone in the life of our church and look at them as if they are kind of freshman Christians. Or JV Christians. I'm varsity because I stayed here, right? They've moved on. There must not be varsity Christians. right? They just may be wired differently than you are. And that's okay. That's okay. So it refines us. It gives us this kind of wisdom. It cultivates and refines us trust and compassion and self-awareness. See, the product of suffering, it's not just about suffering, but what it produces as it refines us in our lives as we find ourselves in furnaces at times for our faithfulness to God. Alright? Now, this is where these four young men find themselves thrown in the furnace, experiencing suffering for their faithfulness, but I want you to know who is present with them as we close this morning. And I would, I would tag this part of the text, the presence of God in the furnace. In verses 24 to 25, the king is astonished because he, he could do simple math, right? Okay, So he turns to his advisors and he says, didn't we throw three men into the furnace? Wasn't the fire so hot right, that it killed the mighty men that I sent to bind them and throw them in? Weren't they bound whenever they were thrown in? Hands behind their back, feet tied together, right? Weren't they constricted in the furnace, but now I see them, they're up, walking around, loosed and free, and in fact, he says, one, two, four, there's four men now in the furnace, and the one of them looks like a son of the gods. Now, in the Old Testament, there is what theologians call theophanies, and theophanies are the appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ. In other words, before he's born of the Virgin Mary in the Gospels, he shows up times in the Old Testament as the embodiment of God's presence there with his people. And many commentators and scholars, when they look at this text, they see the pre-incarnate Christ walking with these three young men through the flames in the fire. Which brings to pass part of what was prophesied potentially in Isaiah 43 2, where Isaiah says, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flames shall not consume you. Because Jesus is present with them in the midst of the fire, and he walks through the flames next to them. And I want to tell you something church that Jesus promises in Matthew chapter 28 to be with His church in every place in every age, until this age draws to a close, and the Great Commission, he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples. And he says, As you're going and baptizing and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded, he says, And I will be with you until the very end of the age. The promise of Jesus' presence, listen, in Matthew 28, is connected to His mission. It was not made in a vacuum. So, In other words, He's not saying, I'll be with you whatever you do. But He's saying, as you are faithful to the mission of disciple-making and fulfilling the Great Commission, know that I will be with you. Even when your execution of that isn't as good as it could be, I will be with you. Even whenever the church is crumbling seemingly around you, I will be with you. Even in the midst of your suffering, I will be with you. When the flames get hot and the furnace is overwhelming, I will be with you. And for these last five years, as we've sought to share the gospel, shape disciples, and send missionaries into our neighborhoods and across the globe, Jesus has been with us in the fire, no matter how hot the flames became. No matter how hot. And you ask how. Let me give, I, I could tell story after story. I'm going to give you a few first, and then we'll be done first. He was with us in His provision. In His provision. In 2016, right? we were bleeding money every month. And I'm not using preacher over exaggeration. Talk to a member of the finance team, and they can tell you. All right. We were drawing out of savings every month to cover our monthly expenses. And so I, as, as a team of elders, we said, you know what? Is it time to shut the doors? Do we just shut this thing down? God is saying no. And after a time of prayer and reflection, of searching... Uh, the Scriptures and seeking God's will and wisdom, we determined that we had spent too much of our time trying to keep people here who didn't want to be here rather than trying to reach people who weren't. And so, if in 2017 we could position ourselves to be more outward-facing in the community engage the community around us, then we needed to keep going. But to keep going, we prayed to God and said, God, we need stuff. Okay? God, we need Financial provision, we need staff, and we need you to add to our number and draw people into the context of this local church body. And so we began to pray because two of our staff members had already indicated their intention to resign at the end of the year, and another one we were asking to raise funds for his own salary to offset that on the church. The day that he re- came back and said, Hey, I don't think I'm interested in raising any money to help offset, I think I'm going to look for something elsewhere, and that was in September. Uh, fast forward, the next, uh, that was in September, we had the conversation. In October, he said, I don't think I can do that. The very next day, that is not preacher exaggeration either. The very next day, I get an email from somebody I'd never met. His name was Brian Rowe. And Brian says, Hey, I saw a posting for a part time student ministry position on, your, on the DTS student job board. Um, I've never done student ministry before. All I've ever done is lead worship. Uh, but if you guys are still looking, my wife and I are interested in, in having a conversation with you. Now the guy who had told me he was, couldn't go out and raise funds was our previous worship leader. Is that, is that lost on everybody but me? Right? That God was providing. So I said, can you meet tomorrow? <laughs> so we sat at book club and we talked. And as we got to know Brian, as he got to know us, became evident the Lord had led us to Him and them to us. Money. We needed money. Because we couldn't bleed out forever. And so I set a goal to try to raise $20,000 to offset my salary on the the burden on the church. So I began to set up meeting after meeting after meeting after meeting with people that I had ministered to and ministered with over these last 15 years and has person to person to person to person all very quickly said yes. Some of them set up recurring contributions for $50 a month. Others gave us uh, stock that they were trying to to just roll off. And so we cast that stock in. It was like four grand. Others wrote $5,000 checks, one-time gifts, and gave them to Redeemer in order to offset my salary on the church. And I stopped setting up appointments when God had provided $23,000 of money for the 2017 budget year. That might be lost on you. It's not lost on me. Right? We needed people. Right? So we began to pray. And that fall of 2016, we began to see new families coming into the doors of the church. In the 2017, new families coming into the life of the church. Listen, 2019 for us, was a stellar year of growth as God added to our number. We added 19 new families in or 2019, right? which doubled our member families. In 2019, our average attendance on Sunday morning was our Easter attendance from 2018. The Lord was being faithful to bring people into our midst over and over and over again. I could tell story after story Right, about how the all showed up in January of 2018. Not knowing we would need live stream and meet in their home. But for such a time as this, God was bringing them and positioning them with us to prepare us for COVID. Right, His presence has been with us, church. And I believe it will continue to be so. Now, one last, there's always one last thing with me, isn't there? One last thing before we're done. At the end of the text, I want to show this to you before we come to the Lord's table this morning. Nebuchadnezzar makes this declaration after he sees that there's no fire hasn't touched them, not a hair on their head is sinned. They don't even smell like smoke. And they come out of the furnace, and he issues a new decree saying, if anyone speaks poorly of their God, Some really bad people are going to do some really bad things to them. And then he says, here's why. There is no other God who is able to rescue this way. This way. What is this way? Here's what I think he means. There is no other God who is able to rescue us, not from the flames, but through them. Through them. Because that is so often how God rescues us, isn't it? God oftentimes does not choose to heal us from diseases that we may have, but He chooses to deliver us not from death, but through it to an everlasting enjoyment of Him. Sometimes God doesn't choose to rescue us from the loss of a job, but through the loss of a job and provision of something on the other side that we couldn't have imagined before. And we could talk; I could give you example after example, but perhaps the prime example of this that we see in the Bible is that if anyone deserved to be rescued from death, it was God's own Son, Jesus Christ. But what does He do? He doesn't rescue him from it. He rescues him through it. Because Jesus Christ, who lived a sinless life in our place, gave himself on the cross in the place instead of sinners. And that God's wrath fell upon him for my sin and your sin. So God didn't rescue him from death, but he didn't stay in the grave, church, because God delivered him through it and raised Him and exalted Him so that in the name of Jesus, we're told in the Scriptures, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess in heaven and on earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And it is because God delivered Jesus through death that He is able to walk with us in the midst of all of our smaller furnaces. He was thrown into the ultimate one and it consumed Him for you and for me so that whenever we walk through our smaller ones, whether as individuals or as churches, we are able to know that He is with us and those furnaces won't consume us, but they will change us to be like Him. I hope that's what we want. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for Your faithfulness these five years, the ways in which You have worked, the ways in which You have have flexed, God, and shown Your strength and shown Your might and shown Your power in the same way that You did in the lives of these three young Hebrew men so many hundreds of years ago. So, Fathers, we reflect back on these last five years and the way that You have led us, God. The faithful men and women that You've brought into the life of this congregation who have resisted the pressures to conform to the prevailing culture around us. And the ways in which, God, You have helped us, and enabled us by Your grace to persevere and cling to You in the midst of that. The refining work You've done in our lives individually, in our church body corporately through that process in teaching us about ourselves. Giving us, refining in us wisdom and trust and compassion for others who are hurting and the way that You've shown Your presence with us, God. For that this morning, For that this morning, God, we echo the words of the King and say there is no God who is able to deliver or rescue in this way. So, Father, we come to the table this morning and remember that You rescued Your Son through death, not from it. Father, may we be nourished as we remember His body that was broken and His blood that was shed for us. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.